Dr. Jay Richards is an assistant research professor in the Bush School of Business and a fellow of the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. He's the, also the executive editor of The Stream, which is an online journal. They publish great articles. He's a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. And he's also, you might have seen him on TV as a, actually a million different places, but in particular as a host of A Force for Good on EWTN. He's the author or editor of a dozen different books, including multiple New York Times bestsellers. He's also the author of Money, God, and Greed, which is a winner of the 2010 Templeton Enterprise Award. And he's the co-author of Privileged Planet with astronomer Guillermo Gonzalez, which actually will tie in more with the talk he's doing tomorrow. And with Jonathan Witt of The Hobbit Party, the vision of freedom that J.R. Tolkien got and the West forgot. And his newest book is The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in the Age of Smart Machines. He has, his articles have been published in numerous reviews that there were several paragraphs long, so I will skip the several paragraphs. Um, but he's also the creator and executive producer of three different documentaries, which have been seen on, aired on PBS, the Call of the Entrepreneur, The Birth of Freedom, and The Privileged Planet. He has spoken countless different places and has appeared on several hundred radio and television programs. Um, so if you haven't seen his face somewhere talking about something Catholic, you need to turn on your TV more. All right, so anyway, he has his PhD and in philosophy and theology from Princeton Theological Seminary, and as well as a Master's of Divinity and a Master's of Theology. And he resides, like I said, in Washington, D.C. with his family, and we're lucky to have Dr. Jay Richards. Yes, by all means, watch more TV. That's my main message for tonight. <laughs> so I'm using a different system here tonight. I've never uh, used slides that are directly behind me, for one thing, and I'm actually, and so I'm actually controlling the slides from an iPhone too, as opposed to a clicker. So if there's some technical glitch, uh, that would be Mr. Nielsen's fault. So this is complicated. So I'm just actually, I, this is going to be a good system. But what I want to talk to you about here for a few minutes, actually. Uh, uh, the previous talk was a perfect setup for this. And in fact, you may not know this, but, um, or maybe you do, but you know, the, the, the term Catholic social teaching gets thrown around a whole lot. And I'm a, a convert. I became a Catholic just about 10 years ago. And so I, when I became Catholic, I thought, oh, I need to find the list of the principles of Catholic social teaching. And so I, I think I just Googled them. And there's no sort of accepted list of what they are. And so this is part of the reason it's so difficult to nail this down. It's like nailing jello to a wall. You can't quite figure out what's, what's happening. That list is an amazing distillation of what I think is the core of Catholic social teaching. Yes, it's, it's based in the gospel and Holy Scripture. Um, it's often, you know, sort of dated at the beginning in, in 1891 with Rerum Novarum to the present, though that's just kind of a convention. So there's all these documents you could read, but you can actually spend years reading the social encyclicals. Um, but, the, but the sort of core of it, the perennial... Uh, jewels of Catholic social teaching are found in these moral and theological principles. They're principles that are the truth about human beings and human society, 
um, and, and God and the way we interact that govern our social lives together. And so if, if you know nothing else about it, just that, just the list that you got with, the, with those summaries is terrific. Uh, what I want to talk to you about is the sort of economic side of this. I've spent, weirdly, about the last 12 years of my life, more or less full-time, um, and, and as a philosopher, oddly enough, trying to persuade Christians that they shouldn't be stupid when it comes to economics. I hate to say that, but that's basically what I spent way too much time doing. And part of it is because I was myself so stupid when it came to economics uh, as a college student. I went to school uh, as an undergrad in the 1980s, was totally clueless about economics and everything else, and got in my freshman year in a political science course, and was assigned this book by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels called The Communist Manifesto. Uh, and I, I misunderstood what my professor had said. I thought he had said, if you read the books five times through, you'll get an A in this class. But he was a low talker, and so I was constantly misunderstanding what he said. But I read the Communist Manifesto five times through, um, and it turns out he said, you're, ba you're bound to get an A. It, it, that's also true, actually, if you read the books five <laughs> times. But um, it also, what it does is it makes you think like a socialist if you don't know anything. And so my Christmas, my freshman year, I go home uh, to my family, and I'm talking like a Christian socialist. And so uh, you can imagine how I would be very frustrated if my, my college student actually did that. But that's what, that's what I did. And I, it, basically, it was, the logic was like this. Jesus talks a lot about the poor. The socialists that I've read talk a lot about the poor. Therefore, Christians should be socialists. That was about how sophisticated my thinking was at the time. So not rock solid, but enough to confuse me for several years on these questions. Fortunately, I kept reading economics, and I would go to, I would, at the time, I, I thought you should try to read around different controversial subjects and find the best representatives of arguments on both sides. So I'd go to the school library and I would do this, and as a result, I started reading magazines like National Review, and I found this American economist named Thomas Sowell, and I started reading his books. Um, he's still alive and met him years later. And so by the time I was a senior in college, I became convinced that the market economy um, it goes by different names. You can call it capitalism if you want to, but that's actually a term that Marx popularized, so it's not the greatest word. But a free market economy or free enterprise or whatever you want to call it, it's the best of the live alternatives for economic options this side of glory. And socialism, a command economy in which the state basically dictates the terms of the economy, is just a disaster wherever it's tried. Now, neither, of course, a market economy is not going to create a utopia, but for doing what an economy uh, should do and for what we would want it to do in a fallen world, I thought this is clearly the best economic system. But I didn't, hadn't at the time found a way to think of it in an integrated way. I just had this economic ideas that I thought were true over here, and then I was a Christian over here, but I didn't see how they quite fit together. Uh, and I ended up graduating from college without resolving this problem. And then I didn't have to because the Soviet Union collapsed. And so I thought, well, I was transfixed by an argument that just got settled. So there's no reason for me to pursue this academically any longer. I'll do something else. And I uh, went to graduate school and I wrote on science and faith issues for a long time. Went back on college campuses. Now it's you know, sort of the 1990s. And the same bad ideas I had about economics were alive and well in the 1990s that were in my head in the 1980s. Nothing new had been learned. Nothing whatsoever about the 20th century's experience with, the, with communism made the least bit of difference in the minds of college students. And now, 
College students have no memory of the Cold War because they weren't born. So all of that stuff might as well have never happened. 100 million people dying in communist experiments in the 20th century might as well never have happened because if you look at the polls recently, socialism is on the way up and something called democratic socialism is really popular. Uh, and so I saw this coming when I wrote the book Money, Greed, and God, and it's just, unfortunately, I hate to say it because I said I've spent 12 years talking about it, it's gotten worse. So maybe it would be slightly worse if I, you know, some of us hadn't talked about it, but this is the sort of dilemma we're in. And I think part of it especially is that as Catholics, we don't know quite how to think about these issues. There have been thinkers who have made robustly Catholic defenses of the market economy. Michael Novak was just, just mentioned, was a, a, a great defender of the market economy, wrote a big book that actually probably influenced uh, Pope John Paul II. But it doesn't have a way of work, it hasn't worked its way out into the faithful. So that there, I promise you there are a lot of faithful Catholic high school and college students right now that are deeply confused when it comes to e these economic questions. And so I, what I did when I, I wrote Money, Greed, and God is I realized, why is this so hard? Why is this so hard to, to, to figure out? And I finally came to the conclusion that it is the result of patterns of thinking, or what I call myths, that we get in our heads, that seem obvious to us, uh, that cause us to misunderstand economic reality. The other thing is that we don't actually realize there are economic truths. This is the thing that I think is often missing, is that we treat economics as if it's just a debate about political ideologies or it's just a question of ethics. And I think this is the kind of, this is the key mistake. Uh, so why is sort of integrating ethics and economics so difficult? She's, she's asking this question. Um, <laughs> and I think it's basically this. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm a wanderer and the mic is connected to the podium. So will y'all remind me to come back to the podium if I do that again, all right, it's right here. Um, the reason is because when it comes to economics, Several different kinds of questions intersect. They always intersect. This is not true when it comes to something like chemistry. Have you ever gotten in a knockdown, drag out argument with your family at Thanksgiving over the order of the periodic table? <laughs> no, now why is that? Well, we know that it's a settled science, it's well understood, the periodic table is filled in. It wasn't always filled in, you know, we didn't, knew the helium should exist even when we hadn't discovered it. Uh, but it's really well understood, the, the rules are understood, seventh graders can learn it and you can do experiments and they'll be exactly the same in Shanghai or in, uh, in South Carolina. And that's, that's what you know, a sort of ideal natural science is. Well, economics isn't like that. Uh, economics is about human beings buying and selling and exchanging goods and services and information, usually in the context of scarcity. Well, we're the most complicated things in the physical universe, and an economy is us interacting. Uh, so, you can, so studying this is going to be hard, and it's going to be kind of less precise than when you're doing chemistry or something like that. Nevertheless, there are truths of economics that can be discovered and that are known by economists, even economists that totally disagree with each other on certain political issues. And so that's on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand, there's always an ethical dimension to economics, unlike 
chemistry, right? As, um, you know, as, as Nathan mentioned earlier, um, yeah, what, what would a Christian math or a Catholic math look like? Or what would a, cat, what would a Presbyterian chemistry look like? You know, you, 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 we have a sense that, okay, in that area, the, those questions aren't as worldview sensitive as economics is. And the reason is because economics is about the human person. So if you don't understand what the human being is, in his essence, you're probably going to be a little bit mixed up about economics. And so that's what makes economics so difficult, especially when you're trying to integrate, okay, how do we think about this as Catholics? How do we integrate Catholic social teaching and moral principles with economic reality? And I, so I think this is really my way of saying, okay, here's how to simplify it, is to think in terms of three different questions. The first is the what question. Um, now, I'm just going to take a, a, a random example so, I can, so that we'll have something to work with. Um, the what question is, what would happen if we tried something in economic policy? So it's sort of the, quite, the empirical question of uh, let's observe what would happen. So the, the thing we're going to think about is a policy where we raise the federal minimum wage to $100 an hour. Right? So everyone will be rich. That's, that's going to be the policy. So the what question would be, if the federal government raises the minimum wage, which means it's illegal for anyone to have a job unless they're paid at least $100, what will happen as a result of that? Or at least what will happen after we do that? That's the what question. All right, now, ideally, you would have a control group and uh, you know, an experimental group, and you'd, you'd test this in several different ways, and there'd be a double-blind study. You can't do that with populations. So the best that you can sort of do is you'd implement the policy, okay, see what happens to, say, youth unemployment, see what happens to the black market, see what happens to crime, things like that, all right, economic growth. And then you could maybe say, okay, now let's abolish it and then try it again a few times. The why question would just be, we tried this, and here's what happened. All right, simple stuff. All right, that's the why question. Then there's the why question. The why question is, okay, here's what happened. Why did that happen? That's the causal question. Because you could say A followed B every day. You could over and over, you could say, well, every time we do A, B follows, but still not know that A caused B or why it caused be. So, for instance, every time we raise the minimum wage to $100 an hour, uh, male inner-city uh, teenage unemployment goes to 99.9%. Right? For some reason, 14-year-old boys can't find jobs uh, in the city when the minimum wage is $100 an hour, and that just happens every time. But you might not have any idea why that is. But if you know just a little bit about economics, you actually do know. All you have to know about is supply and demand which I bet you almost everyone in this room had at least that macroeconomics class that's designed to make you hate economics, by the way. Uh, it's just supply and demand, so there's this relationship. So if you have a, you know, a fixed supply and demand goes up, then the price is gonna go up, right? And it works, and it's really, really well understood, and you can use it to explain all sorts of things. That's one thing. And then if you understand what prices do, Prices aren't just in a competitive environment. They're not just random numbers that store clerks come up with. You might think, well, that price for gasoline, that's just that's the result of that greedy gas station owner or something like that. The gas station owner might be greedy, and so he says, I want to charge $30 a gallon for gas. But if the going market price is $325 and everybody else is charging $325, he's not going to sell it, right? Nobody's going to buy his gas. So how does he find out what the market price is? He has to keep lowering it, right, until he finds that sweet spot. And that, when I think about that happening over and over again, 
right? That's why you end up with gas stations all charging within a few cents of each other, but it varies. What a price is, is it tells you a little piece of information. It's a packet of information about the underlying economic reality of something. So the price of a gallon of milk in a competitive environment tells you about the underlying supply and demand for that. This is just basic price theory. So I've given you lessons one and two of, of, of microeconomics. Now if you understand that, you know why youth unemployment goes through the roof uh, if you raise the minimum wage to $100 an hour. Because everyone's labor doing different things has a particular economic value. So if you're a 14-year-old boy in inner city Washington, D.C. that's never had a job, there's literally nothing you can do that's worth $100 an hour to anyone, trust me. There's probably nothing I can do that's worth $100 an hour to anyone. Uh, so th that's the difficulty. And so there's going to be some kid in D.C. whose labor is worth maybe working, you know, dishwashing or something. His labor might be worth $4 an hour. That's just what it's worth. And so it doesn't do him any good to make it illegal for anyone to pay him that. That's the difference, because the things are going to have some particular economic value, irrespective of what the government says you can pay them for it. All right, so that's, that's what, notice what we're doing here, that we're sort of getting the nature of economic reality. And that's the sort of key thing. If you forget everything else I said tonight, remember this, that just like physics or chemistry or 19th century romantic literature, those study different areas of reality. So economics is this domain of God's created reality. God's created a universe with this internal logic to it, and it has all these different spheres that have their own rules, and you can study them on their own. And so you can study economic reality and discover principles and rules that are true and allow you to understand what's going to happen in the world when it comes to economics. But too often as Christians, we think, well, if I know what I ought to do, what's nice to do to people or what my nice aspirations are, I don't actually need to know what that, the economic reality is like. That's the key mistake that we make over and over again. So if you don't know the what and the why, you can't ask, could you guys see, I guess depending on where you're sitting, if you could see the slide, sort of. So that says, what ought? That's the third question. What ought is just what ought we to do? So the what question is what happens, if, you know, what happens if we raise the minimum wage to $100 an hour? The why question is why did that happen? The what ought question is ought we to raise the minimum wage to $100 an hour? Now here's what you should notice, is that we have no idea how to answer that third question if we don't know the answers to one and two, right? How could I possibly know whether it's a good idea if I don't have any idea what would happen if I do it? And yet we very often just jump ahead and assume that, well, since I wanted this to be a nice thing to do, we should do it. But it's, if, you, if you lay it out this way, you realize, hmm, yeah, actually, I don't have any idea what we should do uh, on some economic policy if I don't know anything about economic reality and what's likely to happen. If you can just kind of keep that straight in your head, you'll be 80%, you'll be better off thinking about economic issues and ethics than 80% of the population. And so what I want to do is just give you sort of four examples of ways in which we misunderstand economic reality, myths we believe about the nature of markets and, and wealth and poverty that cause us to end up messing these things up. Here's the goal. The goal ultimately, if we have a sort of robust 
Catholic worldview that's also informed by economic reality is that we connect and integrate in some ways the what, the why, and the what ought in the right order. So what's the first myth? This is it's really related to what we've just talked about, and it's what I call the piety myth. The piety myth is just the myth or the mistake of confusing your good intentions for the outcome of actions. It's a great little book called Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, and he actually talks about what he calls uh, uh, the uh, art of economics. And here's what he says right at the beginning of that book. He said, the art of economics consists and looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. So in other words, if your friend says, you know, it would be great if the Congress would just raise the minimum wage at the federal level to $100 an hour, and then everyone will be rich. If you've mastered the art of economics, You'll, yeah, you'll say, that sounds, you, you love people, I guess. Um, but what will happen if we do that? That's the art of economics. Oh, and then what will happen? If you could just get yourself to do that, right, sort of skip the warm, fuzzy feelings and say, hmm, what, what, what would happen if we did that? And then actually trace the consequences that maybe weren't anticipated. You've mastered the art of economics. If members of Congress would master this art, we would have actually an amazing country, right? That's the basic idea. Now, this is hard for us, though, I think, because um, we know that in the moral act, both why we do something and what we do matters. That's the sort of point of the widow's mites, this, this passage in the Gospels in which Jesus and the disciples are in Jerusalem and they're watching people give ostentatious offerings to the temple. And Jesus calls out one widow who he sees give two mites, two copper pennies. And he says that she gave greater than the others. Now, he's not saying he, she gave greater in terms of economic wealth or value than the others. What he was saying is that she gave out of her poverty. So the significance of the moral act for her was greater than someone who's wealthy. Also, a wealthy person got to have virtue signaling and have people see him give all of his wonderful uh, gifts that he could afford to the temple. The other thing is she had to act, it was a really an act of humiliation in some ways, to have to, to visibly give so little. Jesus' point is that why she gave, right, the kind of moral fact of the act there, what was significant in that case was not the external, but the internal. We all know this. If I give my wife two dozen roses just on a random day, not our anniversary, not her birthday, um, from the outside, that might look like a nice thing, and maybe it is, just a random, random act of kindness. Now, but what if you're my friend, and you know that I like to go on three-day golf outings um, over the weekend, uh, and my wife doesn't like this, and I've gone on too many already this year, and I really have an awesome opportunity to go on one next weekend, and I haven't told her yet, and I've just sent her two dozen roses. Now, does that change your estimation of the act a little bit? Yeah, because, oh, it's, that's an act of manipulation. What we're doing is we're connecting, the, we're connecting the internal and the internal elements of the moral act, both of which matter. God cares what we do and why we do it. That's not true with economic policy. Why you support an economic policy doesn't have any effect on the effect of the policy. Just because members of Congress mean well doesn't mean that the policy won't kill people. 
That's what's hard for us, is to have to sever that and to say, look, let's just focus like a laser beam on what these policies actually do if we genuinely care about people. Let me give you a short example of this so you can see how important it is to understand the nature of economic reality if you're going to do something. So a policy called rent control, which I assume doesn't exist in, in Greenville. I, I, I trust the entire state is, is safe from this policy. But the basic idea was something that emerged in the 1960s and 70s, sort of universally across the world in large urban settings in which a lot of people, because of industrialization, were moving to cities. Uh, there's a limited amount of space supply and demand, so the prices start going up for rental housing, and city councils around the world thought, well, this is going to make rental housing unaffordable to lower income people. What do we do? So they managed universally to come up with more or less the same idea. Let's implement rent control and make it illegal for landlords to charge above a certain amount. All right, and then that'll keep the, pro the pro prices of rental housing down. Now that sort of makes sense if you don't know anything about economics, but you realize something's going to go wrong here if you think about this just from the perspective of the landlord. Let's say you own an apartment complex with one-bedroom apartments, and it costs you $800 a month in rent just to maintain a single unit. And your city has now told you you can only charge $400 a month in rent every month. So that means if you rent out a unit, you're going to lose $400 a month. Are you going to do that? I mean, unless you're sort of into losing money. That's why you went into this business. No. And so what you're going to do is there will be several things you could do. You can convert it to condominiums so that you sell the property so that people own it so it's no longer under the rent control rule. Convert it to commercial property. Maybe you'll rent it out as a, you know, a garage or a warehouse or grocery stores or something like that. So again, it's not residential rental property. Or you'll quit maintaining it hire you know, a bunch of criminals that don't actually know how to do electrician work you know, to try to upkeep, keep it up. And the place slowly degrades until it becomes a slum and it's condemned and then people can't live there anymore. Right? And then imagine if there are developers out there that might have been willing to build new apartment complexes. Are they going to do that if they know that there's no way they can actually even break even? No. So what's the effect of the rent control policy over a 10-year period or so? It's to create a shortage in the housing that was supposed to be preserved. So it does the opposite of what it was supposed to do. And this is just because of basic economic reality. That's the danger of the piety myth, is that you'll focus on what you meant to do and not think for five or 10 more seconds about what actually happens. That's probably the biggest of all the myths. Another one that's a little more complicated is the greed myth. The greed myth is not the idea that people are greedy. All right, that's a universal, uh, this side of the fall. People, you get three or four people together in a room and get money involved and, you know, greed is likely to crop up. But there's nothing uniquely greedy uh, about Americans or any particular economic system. The greed myth is the idea that it's the essence of the free market economy to be about greed. That it needs greed and it feeds greed. There's something sort of, it, it's intrinsic to it. That's the greed myth. There was a movie in 1987 by, uh, uh, well, I won't say who it's by yet, if you've seen it, at Wall Street with Michael Douglas, who played a character named Gordon Gekko. Uh, there was actually a sequel to this movie a few years ago that's actually also very amusing. Um, but the, the movie has a weird scene near the end. Gekko is a stereotypical Wall Street real estate trader with the big stiff white collars and the cigars and all that stuff. It's the 80s, so he also has suspenders. Um, he's just the kind of perfect stereotype. And there's a scene in the movie where he's at a stockholders meeting and he gets a hold of the microphone 
And this is part of the speech that he gives. He said, greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms has marked the upward surge of mankind. Now, this is a weird moment, because you think, is this supposed to be the climax? This isn't very inspiring. Um, but if you know something about the movie, it makes sense. It was written and produced by a guy named Oliver Stone. So if you think of the political spectrum, here's the right, and here's the left, and then here's the conspiracy left, and here's Oliver Stone, all right? Um, and so you get, okay, well, yeah, this is a terrible stereotype. I mean, of course he's going to create a character like this. Here's why I think the greed myth is so insidious, and that the probably the most widely read 20th century author, at least in English language, defending capitalism was a woman named Ayn Rand, who defended selfishness as a virtue. Rand was a hardcore atheist and a hardcore anti-Christian. She blamed Christianity on socialism. She said socialism is the result of altru or Christianity taught the world altruism, and altruism leads to socialism, and so Christianity is evil because of the evils of socialism. That was her logic. She even wrote a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. And, you know, she knew what she was saying. Of course, selfishness is one of the seven deadly sins. She called it a virtue. Now, remember, she was a defender of the market economy. Now, if she's right, this was my problem. I didn't mention this earlier, but my senior year in college, I was convinced that a market economy was, was the best of the, the options, but I had, through a series of events, read Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand and read her argument and thought, well, if she's right, here's a quote from this book. She said, capitalism and altruism are incompatible. They're philosophical opposites. They cannot coexist in the same manner in the same society. Now, that, if that's true, how could a Christian also defend a capitalist economy? The question is whether it's true. Because it turns out if you look at Rand's, first of all, her characters and her understanding of what altruism is and enterprise, she got it really mixed up. She, in fact, she defined altruism incorrectly. Altruism is from the Latin word alter, meaning other. So to be altruistic is just to act for the benefit of the other. She meant by altruism, acting for the benefit of the other at your own expense. Okay, notice the subtle difference. That's also a virtue, that's called self-sacrifice. But she said, so anytime you act for someone else's benefit, you're harming yourself. Well, if you define altruism that way, it is a problem. But it turns out if you look at what actual successful entrepreneurs do in market economies, the vast majority of the time, what they're good at is anticipating the needs of other people. The late Steve Jobs might have been a jerk in his personal life, but he was really good at anticipating things that people would want and creating them. That's, that's enterprise, is putting yourself at risk, putting your money at risk in pursuit of a vision, of a product, of a service that will serve other people in some way. And she managed to sort of miss that. And when you do that, you're acting altruistically, even if it, it, part of your motivation is perhaps to make a profit. It still doesn't make it non-altruistic or selfish. The problem, so then with Rand, it's not only that she gets enterprise wrong, but she ends up distorting a really important argument in the history of economics by a guy named Adam Smith. 
Adam Smith is a Scottish moral philosopher, considered the, the father of modern economics. And he wrote an important book in 1776 called The Wealth of Nations. And unless you went to Thomas Aquinas College, you've not probably read this book. Uh, it's a big, thick book that most people have never read. It's a lot of stuff about pen factories and those sorts of things. Um, but the book has this kind of perennial importance because of a particular argument he makes about self-interest. And also because of this image of the market as an invisible hand. So everybody sort of associates Smith with that. But they actually usually misunderstand his argument, especially if they've been doing some kind of college reading of Ayn Rand. So here's the only kind of subtle part of my talk tonight. I would have liked to have done this a little earlier, but stick with me for five minutes, because what I want you to see is there's this really important argument that Smith made about the virtue of the market economy and self-interest that's nothing like this greed is good shtick that, that Ayn Rand had. So let's, I'm not gonna sort of try to summarize the wealth of nations for you, but I wanna give you two famous representative quotes and then we're just gonna think about them for a few minutes. Here's the first one. Smith says stuff like this all over the place. He said, it's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. Right, so I just think for a minute about what he's probably saying there, what you think he's saying. Right, so is he saying the butcher ought to be greedy? He said the greedier bakers are, the, the, the more wealth abounds, or is he saying something else? Okay, hold that in your mind. And then one other quote. This, there's only two places I've ever found that he actually uses the phrase invisible hand. Here's one of them. He's talking about what he calls men of commerce. He says, in spite of their natural selfishness and rapacity, business people are led by an invisible hand and thus without intending it, without knowing it, advance the interest of the society. Okay, what is he saying here? He's actually saying several things. It might not be obvious right off the bat. Um, but the key sort of things, first of all, realize that Smith was a Scottish moral philosopher. Economics started in moral philosophy and then developed out of it. That's part of the reason for the kind of complexity of these questions. But he was a very much a moral traditionalist. He never endorsed selfishness. He never treated it as a good thing. He always treated it as a very bad thing that we needed to try to train ourselves out of. All right. So uh, selfishness is never treated as a virtue for Smith. The other thing is that there's a distinction in his thinking between mere self-interest and selfishness. Every time you breathe or brush your teeth or look both ways before you cross the street or take your vitamins or obey your parents if you're a child, right, or pray or get eight hours of sleep, you're acting in your self-interest. Is that just a necessary evil? Is it just bad? Well, you know, we have to eat, we have to drink water and get shelter? No. God made us as bodily creatures that exist in time and place to need these things. That's how we're supposed to be. So what that means is that self-interest is the sort of domain of our existence over which we have some control and some concern. And it makes perfect sense that we would attend to that. In fact, it follows from the principle of subsidiarity. You know best when you need to breathe, right? And when you need to go to the bathroom or drink a glass of water. What if somebody at the Department of uh, Health and Human Services had to call you and tell you when to do that, right? That would be a bad system, right? So you want these things to sort of be controlled at the local level where there's knowledge. That's self-interest, properly understood. It's just the kind of pursuit of that. This is Smith's first point then. When he's talking about the butcher, the brewer, and the baker, he's not talking about him being selfish. 
His point is that the butcher is probably not thinking about how much he loves you when you come in, you know, and ask him about his meat. This butcher probably doesn't maybe even know this lady's name. He does know what people in general want out of meat. He's probably, he may just be thinking, gosh, I need to pay the rent. My daughter needs braces, uh, and I'm not saving enough for college for them. Those are the things that occupy his mind and should occupy his mind, the things that motivate him. And yet, if he needs to pay for his daughter's braces and get money to pay rent, what's he going to do as a butcher? He's going to provide meat for customers that they're willing to buy at a price they're willing to pay and to try to do it better than his competitors. Now, this is not the law of the jungle. Smith here is assuming a rule of law where the butcher can't steal from you, he can't kill you, he can't defraud you. He could try to sell you crummy meat, but you would give him a one star on Yelp, right? You get 10 of those and you'd go out of business. So the best way he can pursue his self-interest is to act in ways that are beneficial to his customers. That is a profound insight, that a market economy, what Smith called the natural system of liberty, can channel people's legitimate self-interest, the stuff they care about, in ways that help their fellow man. That's an amazing argument, an amazing insight, because it's much better than the socialist system. What's your incentive under the socialist system? You don't care about customers. You're getting paid the same no matter what. You care about currying favor with the government, regulators, and the power brokers. Right? That, that's, Smith's argument here is still quite salient. The other point now, so there's that kind of legitimate domain of self-interest, but then there is also selfishness. That's the point of that other quote. Now, let me see if I can go back here. Oh, I can. Um, notice here he's talking about business people in spite of their natural selfishness and rapacity. He's not saying because of their natural selfishness and rapacity. That would be the greed myth. That you know, people need to be greedy or market economies won't work. That, that's a different point. What he's saying is that, well, it's a fallen world, and so business people often are selfish. Sometimes pastors and youth ministers and college professors also are selfish. It's not unique to business people. His point is that in spite of natural selfishness and rapacity, again, think of the butcher. Let's say he's just greedy, not just, just kind of worried about his, his children, but greedy. In a market economy, what's the best way for him to fulfill his greed? To provide meat at a quality that people are willing to buy, right? And pay for it, a price they're willing to pay, and to do it better than its competitors. The same thing. Smith's point is that what a market does is it channels both our legitimate self-interest and even, in a sense, our fallen natures, our fallen tendencies, into outcomes that can benefit other people. And so a lot that has to do with economic policy is about figuring out how to orient and arrange people's incentives so that whether they have good or bad motives, they'll still do things that are more or less helpful. You see how much, how different and more insightful that is than the greed myth. It's also really important because we want an economic system that's fit for fallen human beings. An economic system that requires unfallen angels for it is totally useless to us. Right? We need an economic system that actually works for us. And Smith's argument is that that's what a market does. What's the third myth? The last two are much easier. If you're thinking, okay, he's sliced that bologna pretty thinly. I don't want to see any sort of more thinly sliced. Last two myths are actually related and they're not that complicated. The zero-sum game myth. Zero-sum game myth, as I'm talking about it, is a myth about the nature of trade. And so it basically says, when it comes to trade, there, if there's a winner, there has to be a loser. If somebody benefits from trade, somebody has to, to get a cost. Somebody has to suffer from it. 
uh, and you know that we, we got a lot of this actually in the Occupy Wall Street uh, movement. The idea that if there's a rich one percent, that it's making the ninety nine percent poorer and poorer. But what, what is a zero sum game exactly? Well, it's basically a win lose game. It's just any game in which the rules of the game are set up so that if one person wins, somebody has to lose. Most of the games we play are like this: chess, checkers, baseball, basketball, hockey, football. You can tie in some of these games or draw, but notice if there's a tie, nobody wins. In every one of these games, the rules are set up so that if there's a winner, there has to be a loser. That's a win-lose or zero-sum game. There's two other kinds of games. The second kind of game is a lose-lose game. A lose-lose game is just a game in which everyone who plays ends up worse off as a result of having played it. So these are not fun games to play. No one plays these more than once. Nuclear war in a confined space it might, it might be an example. We don't do these sort of games, at least ahead of time, right? So, so I just want you to sort of see the logic here. So if there's a win-lose or zero-sum game, and there's a lose-lose game, there's one-third possibility here. Win-win games. Now, a win-win game doesn't have to be a game in which everyone ends up equally well off. That's a type of win-win game. But a win-win game is just a game in which everyone who plays ends up better off than they would have been if they hadn't played the game. So to figure out if you're in a win-win game or not, you don't compare yourself to the other players. You don't compare yourself to the guy with the Lamborghini across the street. That's actually a personal story in my case. I had an old Volkswagen Passat with a scratch on the side, uh, and across the street, I was, we were renting these houses, this house temporarily on this bluff in the Puget Sound, and so we were on the non-view side, and on the view side there were very nice houses, and my guy across the street had a, a tangerine orange Lamborghini. And I was working on this book at the time, and I thought, man, what did he do to get that Lamborghini? And I thought, this is ridiculous, what did I do to get a Volkswagen? I should be thankful for that, right? Um, that's, that's the question of a win-win, is you compare, would I be better off if I hadn't been a part of this? And if you're better off, you're in a win-win game, you're not as well off as someone else. So the question is, is there a way of arranging trade that's a win-win game? Or is it always involved uh, a, 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 some kind of zero sum? I actually knew the answer to this question in the sixth grade, but I didn't figure it out. Uh, I went to a, a, grew up in Texas, in a part of Texas that's mostly hot, but for the occasional ice storm for which we didn't get snow, uh, snow days. And that you just hear about it the day before on the news from the Rockies in New Mexico. And so one day when I was in the sixth grade, uh, we knew this was gonna happen and the teacher went to the dollar store. And so during recess, when we were trapped inside, she pulled out this bag of toys that she had bought in the dollar store uh, and passed them all out to us. All really you know, cheap stuff, all equally worthless, I suppose. Um, uh, paddle balls, silly putty, egg, um, Barbie trading cards, stuff like that. Um, and so she passed it all out and then she said, okay, look around at what people have and look at what you have and compare what you have to everyone else and then write down how much you like your toy between one and 10. One, it really stinks, 10, you really like it. So we did that and she said, okay, now everyone tell me what, you, what score you had. And so we all did that, we called out our numbers and she added up the total and she wrote it on the board. So in other words, this is sort of the summation, the sum total of our subjective evaluation of our toy situation, something like that at the beginning of the game. And so she said, now in the first round of the game, you can freely trade with anyone else in the row that you're in, in your row. 
Now assume we had five rows of five. I didn't count, but that sort of simplifies it. That would mean we each had four potential trading partners right at the beginning. So some people did trade toys and stuff changed hands, but not a whole lot happened. Uh, after a couple of minutes, it settled down and she said, okay, now write, write down how much you like the toy you have in your hand. So we all did it again. She had us call out her numbers. She added up the total. She wrote it on the board again. And guess what happened? The number went out. And that's weird. It should strike you as weird. It's one of the greatest mysteries of the universe. Same toys, same people, right? Same day. Uh, and the number went up. Now, it's the second round of the game is why I remember it. She said, now you can freely trade with anyone else in the classroom. So that meant 24 potential trading partners on the first trade, because there was no limit to the number of trades you could make. So it's mass pandemonium at this point. You can imagine kids that have never spoken the whole year, you know, snap to suddenly. Um, and so it's total chaos. Went on for probably five minutes until no new trades could take place. And then she said, okay, now write down how much you like the toy in your hand. So we all did it again. Again, she had us call out the numbers. She added up the total and she wrote it on the board. And what happened? The number went way up. Now, I retest this every year with our Summer Business Institute at Catholic University. If you've got high schoolers that want to spend a week in D.C. learning about this stuff and hanging out in D.C., send them to the Summer Business Institute. It's paid for. And we had 110 kids last summer, all high schoolers. I played this game just to make sure. And guess what? It always turns out exactly the same way. Now, why, what's happening here? Notice what's happening is a system of rules is in place that channels the types of interactions that people can have. Right, so there's a rule of law. I can't threaten the little girl behind me. You give me your silly putty, I can take my Barbie, Barbie trading cards or I'm gonna get you next time we go outside, right? I, I couldn't do that, right? I knew, I, I knew we got squats in this school, by the way. I, I mentioned it was Texas, all right? So there's that, there's the teacher, there's also the rule of law. There's also the rule of law that was partially inscribed inside ourselves, so we knew we just shouldn't do that. So that was in place. And then she told us you can freely trade. Freely trade in that sense meant free on both sides. So trade only took place if both parties participated and both perceived themselves as better off as a result of the trade. That's an amazing thing. What that means is that when a free trade happens, it's not because you perceive the thing equally. Each of you perceive the other situation more favorably. I go get my hair cut freely. I pay the barber money and she cuts my hair. Well, how does that happen? It happens because I want the haircut more than I want the money, and she is, wants the money more than she wants the time that it takes her to cut my hair. We both end up better off. That's called mutually beneficial trade, right? And under the right circumstances, right, a circumstance of economic freedom, not a circumstance of the law of the jungle. This is not uh, the Lord of the Flies, right? In the Lord of the Flies, remember, the big kids just end up preying on the weak, essentially. Uh, economic freedom only exists where you have rule of law, private property rights, a functioning but limited government, and a minimally virtuous culture so people most of the time don't steal and defraud from each other. And then that sets up this avenue for economic freedom and for trade and benefit. So truly free trade is a win-win game. Now notice that, that in this case, I haven't even been talking about the creation of wealth. Oh, we were just moving stuff around in the trading game. But there's also the materialist myth, and the materialist myth is a myth about the nature of wealth. The materialist myth treats wealth as itself a material thing, that wealth must be a material thing. 
And it's easy to believe this because it, wealth is usually tied up in a material thing, a car or gold bullion or cash or land or a house or something like that. But wealth is ultimately just means to ends economically. So the more kind of ends, uh, means you have to achieve certain ends, the wealthier you are in that sense. And so these things always are, the, these material things are just ways in which wealth is bound up. But the materialist myth says wealth is just a fixed amount of finite material stuff. It's like a pie, right? That's what a pie is like. You make a pie and you're gonna have a party and you invite seven people over. What if you had wanted to eat a quarter of that pie? Would you do it in front of your guests? No, because they know they're all going to get less because you ate a fourth of it. The best you're going to do if you don't cut it before they get there is, what, eight equal slices, right? Everybody gets their uh, an equal slice. If somebody got more, we'd say they got more than their fair share. Notice we often say that when it comes to economics, too. So-and-so got more than his fair share. Now, it might be they ripped somebody off, but just because somebody's wealthy doesn't mean that they took more from this finite pie, unless that's the way the economy is. That's the, that's the key point, right? Is that what the economy is actually like? Now you probably know, well, of course that's not what the economy is actually like. We know the economy has grown dramatically, say in the 20th century, it goes up and down, of course, there's times of stagnation and recession, but overall and in general, right, the total amount of wealth, both in the economy as a whole and in, in the possession of actual people, goes up over time in market economies. Economists know that, it's easy to just Google this and, and look at the data. Nevertheless, lots of people believe that. And in fact, in the 20th century, there was a time in which half the human race languished under an economic system that assumed that this is exactly how the economy worked. Remember I mentioned the Communist Manifesto by Friedrich Engels and Karl Marx. The beginning, written in 1848, they predicted in this little pamphlet and in their later writings that what they called capitalism, which they were, what they were referring to as what they pictured, it was sort of the industrial uh, revolution that was happening in Europe at the time. They referred to that as capitalism. So it's, that's a Marxist word, all right? Um, they said, this system is gonna sow the seeds of its own destruction. It will inevitably destroy itself because of the internal logic of the system. And here's their basic argument. So they don't give you a pie chart, so I'm giving you a pie chart so you can kind of see what they're saying. But they basically divide up, the, the Marxist theory says everybody thinks according to their class conscience, consciousness. So you, everything you think and believe and are devoted to is dictated by your social class. Now this is the first bad element of their theory because how did they transcend their class consciousness to make the theory up, right? Um, every materialist contradicts his own theory when he proposes the theory, but let's just set that problem aside, all right? Here's the theory, all right, is that there's these two fundamental classes in the capitalist framework that are at odds with each other. They're the bourgeoisie or the capitalists who own the stuff, the factories or farms or whatever, and then they're the proletariat, the workers that just get paid a wage. All right, and so they said, in the capitalist system, here's what happens, is the capitalist own stuff, right, and then they hire workers. So let's say you own a shirt factory, a textile factory, you hire a bunch of workers, you pay them to make the shirts, and then you take the shirts to the market, and you try to sell it for more than they, they cost to produce. And if you pay, get more than they cost you to produce, that's your profit. But Marx and Engels said, oh, that's called a surplus value, and that's actually exploiting the worker and the customer. The reason is because they believed a thing called the labor theory of value, which said a value of something is determined entirely by how much it costs to produce it. So if you sell it for more than that, 
you're charging more than it's actually worth. Nevertheless, they said, the capitalist won't spend that profit, that surplus value, he'll come back and he'll reinvest it in the capital, in the equipment, in his factories, and he'll make the workers more productive. Then they're more productive, he can fire a bunch of them, he can pay the ones that are remaining less money, and they'll make shirts with even less material and less time, and then he can sell the shirts, make even more profit, and reinvest it again into the equipment, and this will be the process. And as a result, the wealth of the economy will go from the workers to the capitalists. And so here's what they predict. I don't know if you guys can see this, I'm standing right in the middle of it. Um, but look at the pie chart. This represents the amount of wealth in the economy in the hands of these different classes. So pretend this is 1750 in England. The red are the laborers. And so this would represent, say, 70% of the wealth in the hands of the laborers at the beginning in 1750. And then the sort of light blue, that's the capitalists with 20% of the wealth. So think of the capitalists as maybe 1% of the population and the laborers as 99% of the population. So at the beginning, they had roughly, you know, at least kind of roughly uh, uh, sort of equal amounts, all right? So they start with 70%, but because of this capitalist process of profit and reinvestment, the wealth in the economy shifts, right? From the hands of the laborers, who are still the 99% in the red, to the capitalists, who at this point are three semi-monopolists owning everything. And so again, guess what happens at this stage when three guys own almost everything and th almost the workers have almost nothing? Revolution, this is the socialist revolution. Uh, the workers rise up, they confiscate the means of production, they kill the capitalists, and then there's a temporary stage in Marxist theory called socialism. Socialism wasn't the goal of Marxist theory. It was supposed to be a temporary stage in which the state owns everything temporarily on behalf of everyone. And then the idea was that you'd have this socialist state and then eventually a new socialist man would emerge that wasn't attached to things and then the state would wither away and you'd get this perfect utopia and perfect freedom when people could fish in the mornings and uh, smoke in the afternoons and you know, uh, read books in the evenings. This is the kind of stuff Marx said. That was what they were looking forward to. So if you'd asked a Soviet in the 50s, this is a disaster. Why are you living in this squalor? They said, well, of course this is terrible. This isn't our goal. This is just the means to the end. So they thought this was temporary. But every communist experiment got stuck in the socialist stage. Now, why is that? It's because the theory was wrong in all of its particulars about economic reality. The theory wasn't based at all on Marx's careful study of economic conditions in England or Europe. He wrote the Communist Manifesto just a few miles from some factories. He didn't go to the factories once and interview people. He didn't get data. This was a weird form of Hegelian philosophy that seems obviously true to him. He didn't actually need to know anything about economic reality. And as a result, his theory predicted that under capitalism, the wages of the workers should go down rather than up. That was his key prediction. You know what was happening to the wages of workers in England at the time he wrote it? They're going up. Now why is that? Basic economics. If you're a worker with a tractor, your labor is worth more than if you're a worker with a shovel, no matter who, who owns the tractor. Right? So workers with more equipment, are gonna, they're gonna be competing with each other, and they're gonna fetch a higher wage. That's just how it works, that's how economic growth works. Technology and tools, they actually make people more productive, not less productive. 
So the theory was just completely wrong. And notice, though, that it was based entirely on this fixed pie thinking, the materialist myth, that wealth's just this fixed amount of stuff. If somebody gets too much, that leaves too little for everybody else. What's the reality? Well, the market reality is that the pie grows. Not the greatest animation you've ever seen, but I know that I think you get the point, right? Why does this matter? Well, it matters because what it means is that in a market economy, some people can get fabulously wealthy, not by taking wealth from other people, but by creating wealth for themselves and for others. Wealth that was not there before. That is a very profound reality and a profound discovery. We know it's true, but what's funny is economists themselves actually have a very hard time accounting for why it's true. And this is a point in which I think, though I, my argument at the beginning is that we need to distinguish the what and the why. We need to distinguish, hey, what's true about economic reality before we can answer what we ought to do. At the same time, I think it's hard to understand economic reality without theology. You know, if you believe the biblical depiction of the human person, Genesis 1, let's just say you just have that first page of the Bible. God creates the universe, creates everything in six days. He acts during the days. He doesn't act in the evening. And then on the sixth day, he creates the land animals. And then there's this encore where he stops and he speaks to himself in the plural. And he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then he creates them, male and female. And then he commands and blesses them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means a lot of things, but it stands to reason that if, if that's all you knew about God was that one page, you'd say, okay, what do we know about this God? Well, he exercises sovereignty, he exercises creativity, and he exercises freedom. He does it supremely. He didn't need to fight other gods, right? He didn't need to fight pre-existing matter. He just freely creates the world. We can't do that, but it stands to reason that if we're made in his image uniquely, that in part that means that we too reflect that creative freedom. So God creates sand, and then he leaves it to us to create fiber optic cables and computer chips based on sand. Thomas Aquinas said, God grants to creatures the dignity of causality. In other words, God didn't hoard to himself all the creative potential. He created a world, and then he created little creators, creators with lowercase c's, to allow them to participate in his own creative work. So the sort of key economic question, the thing really we most want to understand about economics and what works, is we want an economy that's best able to channel both our legitimate interest into beneficial outcomes, our fallenness, and our creative capacity and potential to create new value for ourselves and others. And the only known economy that can actually do that in abundance is the market economy. Thank you very much.
Um, <laughs> is, that, is that a setup? Yeah, so, so Google Jay Richards and Ayn Rand, so I'm, I'm sort of the prominent critic of, of Rand, actually, so that one was easy. Yeah, so, I, so I've written a lot on Rand, actually, and you don't have to buy my book, just Google it, and I've got a bunch of stuff. Um, there's not a, a lot of sort of sustained, like a, there may be something out there. I actually know a guy in the D.C. area whose dad was an atheist, and his mom was an evangelical Christian, and his life's work is to try to integrate Christianity and Ayn Rand's philosophy, and I thank God I don't have to try to do that. I mean, it seems like a lost cause, but um, Rand is complicated. I didn't give her full credit here, because she's, sometimes what she says isn't as bad as it sounds because she defines words strangely, and so that she does have insights. The fact that she thought, she saw the, uh, heroism of enterprise in the entrepreneur, when almost no novelist has ever done that. Try to think of a novel in which a business person, as a business person, is the hero. I can think of a movie, I can think of It's a Wonderful Life and George Bailey, but Bailey is actually balanced by Mr. Potter even in that movie. The business person as a business person is never portrayed as a hero. Rand got that part right, and that's why I think she's so widely read, but her philosophy and her understanding of these things I think is just completely mixed up. And so if you spent time with Rand and were resonated with her for that reason, I would say you don't need Rand to defend the market economy. And I think the foundations of her work are finely inimical to any kind of basic Christianity. Politics is a branch of philosophy and economics is a social science. Mm -hmm. But what is the discipline of political economy? It's the mix. That's a great question. And so ideally, actually, no, there's the, I'm, one of my majors in college was something called political science. I thought it was going to be studying Plato and Aristotle, and it ended up being this very artificial kind of mathematical attempt to figure out what percentage of the population you would be willing to sacrifice in a nuclear war if you were president, right? Like there's some math answer to that. Um, and so it, the political science, I mean, it, it, I think that that's right. I think politics is, it, it's, it's not a science, but it's not simply philosophy. I think part of, of political thought is the study of history and what's worked and hasn't worked. That's what the American founders did. They, they looked back at previous experiments and experiences. Uh, economics as a discipline ideally is a social science that studies a particular domain of reality. Political economy, I would say, is the discipline that studies the political conditions that best match known economic reality. And it's actually where most of the, frankly, most of the interesting stuff takes place. In fact, we just literally two weeks ago started a new department at the Bush School of Business at CUA called Social Research, specifically to ask these questions of political economy. Uh, because the reality, I mean, as Nathan said earlier, the number one predictor of childhood poverty in the United States is whether he has a father in his home or not. And so if you thought, well, there's these family, there's social issues and there are economic issues. The social issues are the economic issues. They're the main ones. And so if you want to tackle economic questions, you've got to be able to talk about political economy and the health of cultures and civil society. And so it's, it's in political economy or in these programs called PP&E, politics, philosophy, and economics, where that kind of interesting stuff takes place. Unfortunately, a lot of e academic economics ends up being sort of mathematical model theorizing that, you know, it's, it, it can do things, but it's not nearly as interesting as I think the kind of key questions are. Is the operation of a market economy with the invisible hand compromised by the size of the business, for example, Walmart? 
Um, I don't think so. It depends on, now, there's always a question about the worry probably behind this is the idea of a concentration of power. But that was the, that was the claim that Marx made. He said that you would end up with monopolies. And so you get companies that are quite large. I don't think, like, why did Walmart get big? If Walmart got big by paying off regulators, right, that's, first of all, that's not, that's not free enterprise, that's cronyism. Walmart got big because it was good at what it did. And people forget it was a mom and pop store in Rogers, Arkansas. That's how it started. Um, and very often what it did is it would move into towns that had a single store that was enjoying a monopoly and it would compete with them and it did this very well. Um, and so I, don't, so I don't think the fact that Walmart, for instance, is quite large itself is inimical to a market economy. I think what is inimical to a market economy is when government and big, big business collude. Uh, and that's, I think, the real danger. That's what often happens in Washington is you have, you might think, well, businesses don't like regulation. This is not true at all. Big businesses like regulations that make it hard for small competitors to compete. And so you're perfectly happy to pay a little bit extra in expense as a big company dealing with the regulation if you get to help write the regulation that makes it impossible for competitors to enter the market. And so what we want is sort of fair exchange. And then the reality is, yeah, you get companies that get large, but usually about the time people are talking about a company getting becoming a monopoly is just about the time you want to sell their stock. That's what, remember Microsoft, everybody, they were being sued as a monopolist just as they lost their market share. But trust me, Walmart has more than its hands full just dealing with Amazon.com. And you might think Google is here forever. Trust me, it won't be. There's a weakness in their business model. And just when they seem like they're at the top of the world very often. That's precisely when an upstart competitor can bring them down. In a political system, uh, a democracy, a universal suffrage, some politicians will try to raise minimum wages to buy votes, right. regardless of the economic effect. Yes. Uh, how does the system correct for that kind of activity? <laughs> that's a really good question, because here's the dilemma. Um, is that in, 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 in a system in which politicians are elected, their incentives are going to be very specific. So if you're a member of Congress and you're in the House, you're a large incentive. It doesn't mean this dictates everything you do, but you have a huge incentive to get reelected at most two years from now. Right? So what that means is that you need to do things that please your constituents in the short term. If 78% of your constituents think they're better off if you raise the minimum wage, they are going to like it if you do that, even if it hurts them. That's the kind of crazy thing about it, even if it hurts them. And so you might advocate it, even though you know it actually isn't in their best interest. And so what that means is that if the populace isn't at least modestly well-formed and informed about economics, then we cannot constantly be fooled by politicians who promise us things that are actually bad for us. And this is a famous quote attributed to all sorts of people that democracies always collapse when a majority of the population realizes it can vote for itself wealth from the public purse and then it votes for itself more and more money and then the whole thing collapses. Uh, what you can't have is 51% of the population voting for politicians to confiscate the wealth of the 49%. 
which is why you have checks and balances and a bill of rights and things like that to, to precisely limit the power of the state. The good news, this is something that Tocqueville mentioned, uh, uh, recognized in the 30s and that uh, lots of Europeans notice, is that in Europe, when if someone seems wealthy, Europeans will often think, well, what did that guy do? Who did he rip off to, to, to get rich? Whereas more often than not, Americans, if they see a, a wealthy person, will often say, I wonder what he did. And can I, can I do that too? You know, they sort of, sort of aspire to it. And this drives Europeans crazy. But this, in a sense, it's like, well, you know, I'm, maybe he actually created some product that was really useful. I think in some ways that can be acquisitive and consumerist, but that's healthier than the assumption that, well, that guy succeeded. What can I do to bring him down? That's definitely less healthy. Last question. Free market has sometimes resulted in great injustice like child labor, mm -hmm. which required the interdiction of political authority in Iraq. Is this a flaw in free market or in human nature? I don't think it's actually a flaw in either one. Um, unless you think kids working is intrinsically evil, um, th this issue is actually more complicated than that. So. Um, at the time of the American founding, 95% of the population lived and worked on farms. My grandfather grew up picking cotton. My mom and her five children or siblings grew up picking cotton. That's often why people had so many kids, is that they did farm labor. Um, and so if you made it illegal for kids to work in 1776, it would just, everybody would have starved to death or they would have just illegally worked, right? Um, and so the problem isn't kids working, uh, because in some cases, kids are working in economies by economic necessity. Let me give you an example of this. Because this is an example where economic thinking past that first stage is important. If you think, oh, child labor is bad, we gotta ban it. Um, okay, think about if you're in Thailand and you're working in a factory and you're a kid working in a garment factory um, and American companies get bad PR because they're working, buying stuff from your factory and so they quit working with you. This happened in the 1990s. Americans, we got pictures pre-internet of all of our sports or sort of Adidas outfits that were made in factories in, in uh, Asian countries by children and we got out, outrage and there was almost a bill passed called the Child Labor Deterrence Act designed to ban uh, com American companies from working with these factories. The businesses were so spooked that they cut it off. They quit using these factories. Well, UNICEF, we're, oddly enough, in 1997, did a study to figure out what happened. And what they discovered is that the bill, even though it never passed, had the effect. They discovered about 50,000 fewer kids in these Asian countries uh, that had been working in factories in 1990 were no longer working in factories in 1997. So it worked. Now, you've mastered the art of economics tonight, so what's the question? And then what happened? Where are they? Are they at the country day school? Are they local Catholic school now because they're not in the factories? No, the UNICEF study said they are overwhelmingly doing one of three things, rock crushing, street hustling, or prostitution. That's reality, all right? So the kids working in factories more often than not are, might be working there freely or their parents want them to work there because that's actually their best alternative. That's what we have to realize. And so you might not like them working there, but you gotta say, okay, so what would you like them to do? Here are their other options, right? So what you should want is not kind of artificial means to prevent them from doing the thing that's best of their live alternatives, but economic policies that allow countries to get wealthy enough like we did in the 20th century. That's when we implemented child labor laws. It was actually when per capita income got high enough that people could afford that. 
We didn't, child labor laws did not banish child labor. What happened is that most child labor was already over, right, in the, in the, in the 20th century. And people had an expectation kids ought to be in school. We decided that we were going to publicly fund school. And then we implemented laws. But if you had imposed those child labor laws on a country, say, two centuries behind, it would have destroyed them. That's what economic thinking will allow you to do, is to apply what might initially seem to be a moral intuition that would actually might lead you to support a policy that would actually lead children from garment factories into prostitution. That's the power and the importance of understanding and integrating good economics with good ethics. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.